if you have your Bibles with you, uh, please open them to the Gospel of Luke. Uh, chapter 5, uh, we're already at chapter 5. Can you believe that? Since December 1st. We also do have some sermon handout notes here if you want to take some notes today. That would be great. Um, I'm going to read the passage, which is normally our case this morning. We're going to read verses 1 through 11. Awesome story uh, that Luke records for us. And then I'm going to pray one more time and then we'll dive in. So read with me Luke chapter 5, verses 1 to 11. It says this, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land, and he sat down and he taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into the deep water and let your nets down for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and we took nothing, but at your word I will let down the nets. When they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Pray with me, would you? Father, thank you once again for your word, for this word. We are privileged, Lord, to be able to have this text, have it saved and recorded for us so we can know the events that took place in the life of Jesus, your Son. Holy Spirit, I pray today that you would just uh, take um, my words, the words that you've given to me, um, as weak and humble as they are, Father, I pray that you would just help me to be able to encourage my brothers and sisters and friends here today about who Jesus is and why he's come and how amazing and wonderful it is for us. So, Holy Spirit, I do pray today that you would speak. In my weakness, I pray you would speak. And I pray this in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. So, so far in Luke's gospel, as I mentioned, we began the uh, first week of December. Um, he's been going through this, this orderly account. It, it's been remarkable, hasn't it? This orderly account. And we know that his purpose is he's, he's really writing this as a letter, a discipleship letter, a confirming letter to one of his best friends. So it's an amazing model for us, really, the, the, the gospel and the book of Acts, both written to Theophilus for you and I on, on how we should disciple someone, how we should tell someone about Christ, where we should even begin. I know many of us struggle with that. It's like, well, I don't know what to say. Well, th- this, this gospel is, is made and, and constructed in such a way that it, it, it helps us see that. So one of the things that we've been seeing, though, is there's been a constant going on recently, ever since Jesus began 
his earthly ministry. When, since he was 30 years of age and he came out and was baptized by John the Baptist, we've seen some constants. One of them is, is that everywhere he's going, more and more and more and more people are following him, or at least coming out to see him, to hear him. In other words, there are crowds. There are crowds. Very, very, very large crowds. They're, they're impressed by him, certainly. They're impressed by his, his eloquent, eloquent words. They're, they're impressed about the way that he speaks, even we hear. They're certainly impressed by some of his miracles, turning water into wine at a wedding. That was a, a really good one. That's gotten around. But other things that he's been doing, these miracles, are very, very impressive. But as far as Luke's main emphasis or his main desire is, the word certainty not so much. Not so much. It's not like they've gotten to this point where they're really that certain about who Jesus is. And actually, I don't know if you've noticed this, but in the last few weeks, the strangest thing to me, and I think should be to you and I, is this. No one's talking about Jesus being God. <laughs> no one is actually verbalizing that. Actually, just a second, no one except one group. Demons demons are declaring who he is, right? We saw that. I mean, first of all, when he went to his home church, his home synagogue in, in Nazareth, he preaches this beautiful sermon, and, it, and it's, it's really remarkable. They're really taken by him. They love him. Hometown boy done good, and they're really, really enjoying him. And then all of a sudden, they realize when he quotes from the prophet Isaiah about the need of those who he's going to come to, the Messiah, the Son of God is going to come to for repentance and that they're, they're caught in their sin, they're captive to sin, that he's actually talking about them, they're like, okay, enough of that. There's no way that he could be the Son of God. They don't even verbalize that. They just want to kill him. It's not just rejection. They want him gone. Completely, completely, and utterly gone. They do not see him, but the demons do. So we saw this last week that it was amazing. He, he's in the synagogue in Capernaum, and he's preaching, and, and just his presence causes a demon who's possessed a man in the gathering to stand up and, and, and scream out, ha! You know, like it, it's kind of weird the way they translate that from the Greek, but that's really, it's just an exclamation. It's just like, ha! That's actually the voice of the demon screaming out. And he says, what do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. He says, you're the Holy One of God. The demon says that. And then later that night when everyone is being brought to Jesus after he's healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law of her fever, the demons that are coming, it says many of the demons, many of the demons came out crying, you are the Son of God. They come out crying, you are the Son of God. Now listen, people are hearing that, but nobody's declaring it verbally. They're hearing it. They're seeing the miracle of people being saved from this captivity, this bondage of demon possession. It's serious stuff, but there's no response. So far since in his, he's began his ministry, not one person that we've heard of, who's heard, who's heard him speak, who's been healed by him even, is declaring him to be the Son of God. No one yet at this point is doing that. And, and I think Luke is kind of teasing us, don't you? He's kind of pulling us along going, guys, do you see that? Do you see that? I think that's what he's doing. 
But what we have seen is Jesus is showing them that He alone is the one who can answer the big three problems that we talked about last week that all humanity faces, the, 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 the problems that science and, and, and technology cannot solve, the problem of evil, the problem of suffering, and the problem of death. Jesus declared, I've come to do that. And then He goes out and starts doing it, Right? He defeated Satan in the wilderness. He's casting out demons, and at that point can go, evil dealt with, check, right? And then he goes to his, Simon Peter's mother-in-law's home, and he heals her of a fever, just a common, a common human point of suffering. And so we can say, well, at that point in time, suffering, check. Now, we also know that at this point in time, both Theophilus and Luke know that Jesus has risen from the dead. He's been seen by hundreds, if not thousands of people for 40 days. And so they know that he has also defeated death. Double check. But no one's declaring it. That certainty hasn't come to the fore yet. So the good news is we're only in chapter 5. And this gospel is awesome. It just keeps going. And and Luke is building his case. He's taking us to the point where where what he wants and he wants Theophilus to have is he wants him to have absolute certainty in this. It would appear that Theophilus is a believer who he's writing to, but he's like you and me. He's just like you and I. I don't know how long you've been a Christian if you're in your room here today. Me, you know, since I was 23, which is not that long ago, you know. Actually, soon it'll be almost 40 years. Oh, dear. But there's ebbs and flows, isn't there, about certainty? That's why we need to be discipled. That's why we need brothers and sisters in our lives. And that's why we need somebody like Luke to do that for us, to, to keep bringing God Jesus in the flesh to us so that we will have that certainty. And so today, in today's story, I think it's really remarkable. This is an amazing story. It's a really, really remarkable story. Um, there's, there are many stories, really. I mean, we know, we, we are on this side of the cross, so we know all of the rest of the gospel. We know what's happened and what's transpired. But Luke is writing into a, a situation in a culture where many hadn't met Jesus. Luke hadn't met Jesus, so he didn't know this for himself exactly until others, eyewitnesses, had shown him who Jesus was. And so I think today what you're going to see is that in this one story, I mean, the whole gospel, all the other gospels combined, they make it very clear who Jesus is, that He is the Son of God. But this one, one beautiful story, even in itself, I mean, you just need this one story to be able to see the attributes of God that are displayed in Jesus Christ. And based on that, one should believe One should trust Him. One should follow Him. One should have certainty. So let's look at the passage for today. I'll put the first few verses on screen. We'll read them again, and we'll have a look at the story that happens, the true story that happened on this day in history a couple thousand years ago. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on Him to hear the Word of God, He was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, and He saw two boats by the lake. But the fishermen had gone out of them, and we're washing their nets. I just, I just thought of this now. Actually, I thought of it this morning. I was praying about it. I love, again, the way Luke does this on one occasion. You know? and it, it's, but it sounds so much like it's just by accident, doesn't it? You know, he's just, he's just walking along the side of the ocean, the side of the lake. You know, the lake of Gennesaret is actually the Sea of Galilee, just another name for it. And, and you know, it just happens to be, you know, 
seeing Simon Peter's boat, you know, the guy who he's been following him around a little bit for a while now. Just ha- No, no, it's not an accident. This is the foreknowledge of God on display here. He, he's, he's on mission. He has a purpose. And Peter, Peter is part of that purpose in a huge way. And so Luke begins with that, those words on one occasion. I mean, there, there were so many different stories that Luke could have chosen. And Luke, again, is the only one that records this story specifically. All the other Gospels, the other Gospel writers do uh, write about the calling of the men who will be called today, you know, Peter and, and his, his partners in, in the fishing business. They write about it, but not about this story, not specifically about this getting into a boat, preaching to the multitude, the crowd, and this great catch of fish and what goes on with Peter. It's just Luke. It's likely within a few days or weeks, so we don't know, know when he says on one occasion, but it's likely very, he's still in the area of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee, and so it's very close to the time that we saw last week, but we don't know exactly when that is. So two things to notice. Again, first, the crowds. The crowds. I mean, you, you get to Luke chapter 12, and, and actually all the way to Luke chapter 12, you're going to see, we're going to see that the crowds just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger to the point in Luke chapter 12 where they're trampling over each other. There's so many of them. We, we just, again, we have this picture of Jesus, 12 apostles, a few ladies, you know, like that's about it. You don't know. <laughs> thousands and thousands of people are following him and specifically on that day. I mean, basically what's happening is you've got these people, the word is spreading, and they're going, the main word that's spreading is we've got a healer here. Every single person that he touches, every single person that we bring to him, I've been to him, he healed me. That's big news. That would be big news today, right? Not just after midnight on television, but that would be big news if somebody could actually do that all the time, wouldn't it? That would be big news. And so there's a huge crowd. Now, the, the interesting word in there is the word pressing. So you imagine Jesus walking on the seashore. He's not just, you know, like in his tunic, just with sandals. No, this is pressing in. The, the, our English word pressing doesn't really convey the Greek. The Greek is actually two words here. Uh, pardon me, not in this case. It's, it's the, the word, the Greek that's used here is one word. It's, it's basically this. It's the, to place upon. It's like to actually, almost like to jump on. It, it is translated in other places in the Bible, attack. And it conveys the idea to act upon through force and or pressure. And so, and so it's, it's, like, it's like, come on, do another miracle. Come on, do more of that stuff. There's, there's pressure on Jesus in this place. And so he's feeling this pressure, but he's always on mission. And he sees this crowd and he knows, God, he's got to know what their heart is, right? What they really just want but he knows that what he needs to give them is the gospel. And so he sees the boat, and he hires the boat. So we also need to note that they were pressing on him to, to, to hear, look at this, the Word of God. Now, that's, that's the first time in this gospel that Luke uses that phrase, the Word of God. It's important to note because I think in our day and age, um, it, it's almost like a code word, right? When we hear the Word of God, we probably hear, think of one of two things. Number one, we think of, we think of this, right? 
We, we think of our Bibles. We think of this collection of 66 books written by over 40 authors over a period of 1,500 years, and we, we think, well, that, that's what he's talking about. They came to hear this. Well, actually, it hadn't, the New Testament been written yet. Luke's in the process of writing it, right? So that hadn't, so that hadn't happened, certainly at the time that the story takes place. And, and so the, the other is, is that we think of the Word of God being Jesus, but the literal Greek translation, again, and I'm going to refer to a bit of that today because it's so important in this passage, is Luke is actually making an important point here. The literal translation would be, it is the Word that comes from God. So they came to hear the Word that comes from God. That's what Luke is declaring. But I'll, I'll tell you what, and I think, I know most commentators would agree, he, he's not writing this as a statement of fact of what they believe. No, Luke is making a statement of fact to Theophilus and to you and I that this is what they were coming to hear, whether they knew it, believed it, or not. They were coming to hear the Word that came from God. So, the first time he uses it, and it's very significant. So, this is Luke saying that Jesus is on this day and every day that He speaks the Word that comes from God. So, one of the attributes that we're going to see here that Peter certainly finally recognizes is that Jesus is the truth. Everything that speaks and comes out of His mouth is the Word that comes from God, which is every word, everything that comes is the word of truth. It's truth that's being preached and proclaimed here by Jesus. Jesus doesn't speak. We've, we've already seen this. He doesn't speak like other rabbis, which kind of really amazes people. I mean, he speaks without notes. <laughs> you know, he's not been to seminary and got an MDiv. He's just, he's, he's just learned, and he just has this knowledge and this, this amazing authority with which he preaches with. And so the clear evidence that Luke wants to present at the beginning of this story to us is that Jesus, Theophilus, everyone in this room, he's God. He's God in the flesh. John, of course, in, in the first 14 verses of his gospel, he makes that very clear, doesn't he? That's how the 14th verse ends. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And he's God. That's how he starts. Luke is building a very interesting case that we can use to disciple people and teach people about so at this point, Jesus, who's being pressed in on, see that? Hi. He's being pressed in on, right? He's being squeezed and pressured to, to, to do some miraculous act and, and to provide for the people who've come or are following him what they want. He sees two boats. He says to Peter, let's get in one of them. And can we just go out a, a little bit and like 20, 30 feet and drop anchor? And I, I need to preach to these people. I need to preach the word that comes from God to these people. I have a question for you at this point to think about. Is Jesus preaching this sermon to the crowd or to Peter and the other dudes in the boat? Because a few did go with him. What do you think? <laughs> Probably both, yes, is a good answer. But he has one in mind, wouldn't you think? He's got a significant focus in his mind here. And it's this guy who's right there beside him in this boat. So he sees the boat. They're done fishing, clearly. They've been cleaning their nets for a while. And Jesus is thinking, ah, let's escape. And it says in verse 3, Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little bit from the land, and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. 
So the picture is, of course, Jesus being a rabbi, that's typically what they would do is get into a seated position and speak from that position, very um, um, relaxed position, but a very authoritative position in that culture in that day. So he's in this boat and he's preaching. And then again, you got you to picture it here is Peter's right, right here. Peter's right there watching him from the side, speaking to this crowd. And Jesus is preaching to them. He, he's preaching with his heart out to these people. And Peter's there. It's a good technique also. I mean, I've got the microphone on, but it was known well on that day when you got thousands of people like that, and this is, speaks into the numbers that must have been there. Like if he just started speaking on the beach, only the people like tw- maybe two, three rows back would hear him. But he's out on the water, and his voice resonates over the water. So this is also very wise, and Jesus is using the water as a way to carry his voice so that people will hear him. So what would Jesus' message have been? What do you think? I mean, we, we aren't told what he preached, but we are. We've been told. He preached it in his home synagogue, and they didn't like it too much. And he will continue to preach it to the point where they'll want to put him on a cross. And he never stops preaching this, this same message. Matthew, as I read to you last week, he said that when Jesus came back from his temptation in the wilderness, by the devil, the first thing that came out of Jesus' mouth when he spoke to the people who were there, including the fishermen, same place, same day, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. This is his message. His message is consistently the same message all the time. Even at the end of our story last week where they wanted to, they wanted to grab him and keep him. Keep him right there. Okay, we, we love you. You're healing people. Stay here with us. We would do the same. He's like, no. That passage ends. He goes, no, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And so as we continue in Luke's gospel, you will see the same thing, and you will see the same thing in all the other gospels. Jesus preaches about the need for repentance. He preaches about forgiveness that only comes when we place our trust and our faith in Him. He will continually preach that. The other thing that he will do all the way through, and especially when we get to the parables, it's, it's all about how to get into the kingdom now and for the future. And strikingly, who gets in and who doesn't? We saw that when we went through um, a study there where we were looking at the parables of Jesus, right? We were looking at wisdom. It's kind of scary, isn't it? I mean, he's pretty clear about it. There actually are people who will get in and who will not get in. That's constantly his message. Now, imagine on this day, we don't know the words, but he's preaching. He's Jesus. He's the Son of God. Nobody preaches like this guy. Nobody preaches like this guy. They did come and they were willing to hear him. They hear him. So does Peter. It's a very good sermon. We don't get a lot of the details. But this is the message that Peter and the crowd on the shore heard. It's always the same message. It's the gospel. There is no other gospel, Paul tells us in the book of Galatians, right? There's no other gospel. There's no other way. You can't work your way up to God's acceptance and approval. Jesus had to die for you. It's the gospel. It's the only way in to the kingdom of God is faith and trust in Jesus. Well, then it goes on. It says this in verse 4 and 5, And when he had finished speaking... So he's done. When he had finished speaking, he looks to his right, I think, and he said to Simon, put out into the deep 
Put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we we toiled all night and, and we took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. Uh, many years ago, uh, I'm always, I was always uh, in my business life looking for hobbies that would, would uh, uh, take me away from my stressful life, <laughs> which my fault. Was, I was the one who was causing the stress. But I looked for hobbies, right? And so there you know, it was golf and a few other things. But I, I watched a movie, and it was called The River Runs Through It. Anybody seen that? Yeah, all the women remember that because Brad Pitt was in it, very young. They probably don't remember what the movie about was all at all about, but it was about fly fishing in Montana, and I'm watching this. And Listen, I grew up in Ontario, you know, where we went bass fishing, right? And I went with my dad, and everybody knew how to fish. I knew how to fish. It was very simple. You know, you got in a boat. My dad's rule was you get in a boat. It's around 6, 6.30 at night because that's when the fish rise. It's after dinner. They're hungry. We've eaten, but they're hungry still. And, you know, you get in the boat, and you got your, your, your jitterbug and your, 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 your bombers and your flashers. And the whole idea is you, you cast into the water, and, and these, these lures that you're using, they, they, they aggravate the fish, right? They just aggravate the fish. They make them angry, and they, they attack the lure. And you catch a bass. I mean, everybody knows this, right? So I'm watching this movie, and they're going to fly fishing. That's really intriguing. So I got into it. I got a fly rod. You know, I got the, the reel, and uh, I bought some flies. I had no idea what I was doing, right? I'm looking at this stuff, and my brother-in-law's into it, and he doesn't even want to take me fly fishing because he knows I don't know what I'm doing, right? So Jenna signs me up for this course in Surrey. It's, it's called an entomology course. It's, it's remarkable, right? And I go to this course in Surrey, and who knew there are bugs in the water? Did you know that? Like, entomology is about bug life. It's about the life in the water, under the water. And I, and I learned that, like, down in the, the muck, right, the, the bugs, they, 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 they start to, you know, get out, and they start to swim, and then they become larvae, and then they, 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 they morph into, and eventually they end up on the surface of the water, and they hatch and become a fly. I had no idea. Do you know that? So I learned all that, and it's amazing. You go out, and you can fly fish, you know, like, and, and here's the trick. The trick is, you know, so you know basically what every lake time of year, what the bugs are doing at the bottom. So early in the day, you use little flies that match that. But then the most important thing you do is the, the first fish that you catch, you take, you know those, those turkey basters, the big ones? You take a little small one of those, you stick it down the gullet of the fish, and you suck out what's in its stomach. This is wonderful, eh? And, and you put it on your, your, your float tube, which is what you're going to be eating lunch off of later. And then, you know, and then you look at what has come out of their tummy, and you look at the bugs that are the least decayed. And that'll tell you what they were on previously. You match the hatch of that bug and you're going to catch fish for the next hour. It's actually a science. So let's remember this about that day on the Sea of Galilee, the Lake of Gennesaret. Peter's a a commercial fisherman. He knows what he's doing. Right? He, he, he's been fishing for a while. He's got partners. He's the leader. He absolutely knows what he's doing. He knows that the Lake of Gennesaret, the Sea of Galilee, he knows the way it works. The, the, the fish congregate at the, at the mouth of the rivers and streams that drain into the lake. And, and because they're very shallow and, and it gets really hot and, and there's bright light there during the day, the fish are a little skittery, so they don't, they don't come looking for food during the day. They come at night. And so you know, as a fisherman, you, you, you go out at night 
and, and, and you drop your nets into the shallow water and you just pull them all in because the nets are only 20, maybe 30 feet deep in length. And you just, from one boat to the other, you just haul them all in and you get your catch. Peter knows this. Every fisherman in that day knows this. What does a carpenter know? Right? I mean, Peter's got to be thinking these things about Jesus. And yet the remarkable thing that he does is he says, at your word. At your word. That's absolutely remarkable. And so we're going to see that there's a miracle that takes place for sure. But I don't think it's the miracle that some people think. I think some people think that Jesus just all of a sudden, you know, bolt of light and a fish showed up out there. No, I think the miracle we're going to see is that Jesus is the greatest fisherman of all time, and he knows exactly where the fish are. He knows exactly where they are. And so to summarize, Jesus finishes preaching, and then he decides to show Peter, I believe, something about himself. He's already done it in his sermon, but he wants to continue. Jesus, the carpenter preacher, tells Peter to take his boat into where? Deep water. Deep water. To throw his nets into the water, and, and then look at his words. He says, for a catch. <laughs> most of my friends, are I, I use the same phrase, hey, let's go fishing. Why? Because most of us, eh, catching might happen, but we're going to be fishing. I want to fish with Jesus because his, his attitude is we're going to go catching. That's pretty awesome. And I don't know if Peter picked up on that right away, but still, Peter's first point is he's respectful. You know, he's, this is Jesus. He's a rabbi. He, he, he appreciates him. He, he's getting close to him, but he goes, teacher, listen, we, we did fish all night. Come on. We fished all night. There's no fish out there, okay? It's now daylight. Our nets are drying, okay? We want to go back out tonight, but at your word. Three most important words in this passage, from Peter anyway. So I want to suggest to you that something's happened to Peter. Something's happened to Peter. I mean, he's been following Jesus around at Capernaum, at the synagogue, listening to him. Then he goes back to his fishing business, and then Jesus comes out to him. It's remarkable. But something's happened here, don't you think? It sure seems to be the case. Peter says, at your word, he sits in the boat while Jesus preaches this amazing sermon, and Peter's just looking at him, listening to him. Something's happened. Trust. trust. He's trusting Jesus at this point. He's decided to trust Jesus, and on this day, he decided to do exactly what Jesus told him to do. No questions. No questions. You notice that he didn't ask Jesus why. I mean, he said, look, I'm an expert fisherman. We've already fished but I'll do it because you say so. But there's no why. I mean, any of you in this room who are raising young children today or already have in the past, you, you, have you ever seen this kind of compliance? <laughs> I've raised three boys. No, not really, you know. I mean, it gets to a point in their life which is usually a little bit after the period of no, the first time they say no, and just a few spankings will fix that. Okay, listen, I am just saying, you might want to think about that. But then right after the years of no come the years of Why? What, why? 
And at that point, you're like, I don't know if a spanking will help this. Like, this requires an explanation, doesn't it? But there's still, there's the question of why. Well, let's not be too hard on the kids. Are we not like that? Are you not like that? I'm like that. Let me give you an analogy, maybe an illustration. What if someone was to come up with you, to you and you're in business and you know what you're doing about social media and someone comes up to you who you know absolutely knows nothing. You know, a complete Luddite comes up to you and says to you, listen, here's what you should do with Instagram and Facebook to grow your business. You should do this, 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 and this. And you're looking at them, them going, like, you would have a lot of why questions, wouldn't you? You'd be like, listen, thanks for the good advice. Like, why are you even opening your mouth? You don't know what you're talking about, you know? Why, 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 why? It, it would be even worse if it was someone who you really respected and, 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 and they were successful in business or they were a parent or someone that you wanted to show respect to and, and, and you were like, mm, thank you for that. And you took the advice, put it on your belt and you go, I, I'll think about that. But you just take their advice. You, you, you're still asking whys, aren't you? You're still asking this question about why. So these three words that Peter speaks, I think, are clear evidence of the faith that he is now beginning to possess in Jesus Christ. He's come to the first step, the first and important step of trusting to just do what he says. Just do it. Just do it. Find out for yourselves. I think these, this first step is what actually qualifies, not that he qualifies himself, Jesus does, but qualifies him to now be called into the ministry that Jesus is going to call him into. That first step has to take place, that step of trust, that I will do what you tell me to do because I trust you and I trust who you are. I read this recently, a quote from C.S. Lewis. I'll put it on the screen for you. It's a great quote related to this particular subject. He said this, to have faith in Christ means, of course, trying to do all that he says. There would be no sense in saying you trusted a person, Jesus, if you would not take his advice. Thus, if you have really handed yourself over to him, to Jesus, it must follow that you are trying to obey him. Now, I love the fact that he uses the word trying twice. <laughs> I might change that to you must. We must. But yes, we try. And yes, we fail. So Peter's response when Jesus tells him to start fishing, I think is a great example of just doing what Jesus says without questioning. How's that working for you? Ah. <laughs> oh. Without questioning, just doing what he said. It's not just the red letters in your Bible, by the way. The Bible, all of it, Genesis to Revelation, is the word that comes from God. So we're to do all of it, to obey it, just because he says so. Tim Keller, I want to show a quote. I heard him say this, and it's remarkable. It's, it's really uh, convicting, um, but I think it's true for most of us as Christians. At some point in our lives, he said this, if you ever say to something Jesus says in his words, I do not want to do that, it probably means that you've never actually obeyed him, but rather you've only allowed yourself to be advised by him. Oh, I want you to meditate on that today, tomorrow, and in small group. 
It's the difference between good advice in a sermon and good news, isn't it? Good advice is take it or leave it, right? I'll weigh the options of it. I'll I'll decide in my own mind and heart whether that's really going to be helpful to me. The good news of the gospel is (laughs) you're beyond help by yourself anyway, or by human methods and ideas, you need Christ. You need Christ. You need God. You need the way, the truth, and the life that only comes from Jesus Christ. You and I both need that. Well, the story continues. Peter's been pretty amazed, I think, about the truth of who Jesus is, watching what goes on here. And then we read this. And when they had done this, When they had done what Jesus told them to do, without questioning, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both the boats, so they began to sink. (laughs) I love that. Little details like this, right? C.S. Lewis once said that this is proof. These are proof proof texts, right in the text of the Gospels, that this is not fiction. It's not fantasy. It's not written this way. This is fact. This is journalism. This is reporting eyewitness details. You don't need to put it into the boat and it almost sank. You don't need to put details like that in there. I love the Word of God. Isn't it amazing? It's encouraging. Can you imagine the look on their faces? Can you imagine what happened when they got to the shore? They're like high-fiving each other. They're going, woo-hoo-hoo. It's a good thing that we all did what Jesus said, man. Can you believe this? Look at the fish. Can you imagine what the crowd was thinking? Look at the fish. This is awesome. Something's happening to Peter. Something's happening to Peter. He doesn't feel the same way at all. It's remarkable. It says in verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken and so also were James and John, the sons of Zebedee. Were What's happening? What's happening to Peter here, do you think? What's going on in his mind and his heart? Why is he reacting this way? Yeah, yeah, listen, it's good that he's confessing his sin. That's good. It's always good to confess your sin. But he says, he says depart from me. Literally, it means get away from me. Why would Peter respond this way? Why is he telling Jesus to get away from me? And he's down in front of Jesus, at Jesus' knees, which means he's not only on his knees, but he's probably on his hands too, and he's got his face to the ground. He's not even able to look at Christ. What's going on here? Why is he doing this? Well, so far, Peter has seen and heard the Word of God. He's heard the truth that comes from God, and something else has just happened here to Peter. He's within a few feet of holiness. Perfection and holiness. His heart is broken. He knows now exactly who Jesus is. And he also now knows exactly who he is. He falls on his knees. So this is tough. So please hear me well. Hear me well. 
Getting near to Jesus, friends, listen, is not always what people think it is. Getting near to Jesus is not always what people think it is. Some people are, are, are and I mean this well, believe me, okay? Some people are like, oh, when I, when, I, when I hear really good worship and I'm in, in, a, in a worship service and we're just, we're just singing, you know, and it's just worship, I feel so near to God. And then there are others who say, like, you know what? You don't, you don't need a church gathering. You don't need to be at church. You don't need, you know, to hear a sermon. You don't need, you know, you don't need that, you know? I feel near to God when I'm on a mountaintop. When I'm in His creation, when I'm on a trail, you know, when I'm with other people just loving each other, you don't need that. That's when I feel near to God. Here's the problem with that. Jesus said, I need to preach the kingdom of God. And people, Romans 10, Paul tells us, people need to hear the word of God preached, need to hear the gospel for salvation to take place in their lives. We see that evident in Peter here in this story quite clearly, right? The whole Old Testament, the whole New Testament mitigates against this kind of thinking. I mean, think about Jacob in the Old Testament, right? He wrestles with God at night. He thinks the next day that he survived wrestling with God. He says, I saw the face of God. No, he didn't. After he's finished wrestling with God, God just goes, touches him on the hip, and he's, he's lame for the rest of his life, but he feels like he's had a victory. He got close to God. His hip was at a joint for the rest of his life. Job? Do we need to talk about Job? How about the Apostle Paul on the road to Damascus to persecute Christians? He had a bit of an experience with Jesus, didn't he? What happened to him? Hands and knees, face down, blinded. Getting near to Jesus. That's, I think, what's happening with Peter here. How about this? Is it possible also that one of the reasons why Peter is responding this way is that all of a sudden he is being convicted of his personal pride? Do you think there's ever been a possibility that at this point in time, as Peter's thinking about what just happened, and all his buddies are going, whoa, Jesus, we want to fish with Jesus, not Peter, right? Do you think there's any possibility that Peter's thinking, oh, man, I remember the last time we had a great catch, and I took credit for it. The guys were celebrating me. I'm the leader of this partnership. I'm the guy who did that. And he's thinking, I didn't give any credit to you, Lord, for this bounty. And you know what? I didn't display my trust in you for that bounty by giving of the first fruits of it as well. Do you think he was convicted? We don't know. But he was convicted, wasn't he? He's on his hands and knees before his God. Friends, the truth is, the main reason why we don't get close to Christ when we hear his word, hear him preached, is because we're convicted. We're not comfortable. We're not feeling the love but the guilt and the shame our sin causes. We want to get away from him. Some people are like, well, yeah, listen, you know, I, I, I don't know if I like that kind of preacher. Like, he kind of makes me feel uncomfortable, you know. Um, you know, it's, it's, you know I, don't, I don't feel near to God like that. I, I, I feel guilt. I feel shame. I, I, I don't feel the warm fuzzies, you know, like I, I get away from me. Get away from me is what people feel. So let me ask you this. 
I love that Peter this in this particular place. Well, actually, one other point that I want to make to you before we close is this. Let me show you the last bit of the passage where it says this. And Jesus said to Simon, I mean, Simon's so convicted at this point in time, he's on his hands and knees. He's going, Simon, I'll tell you what, don't be afraid. Jesus has just received his confession. Don't be afraid. I forgive you. From now on, you will be catching men. Not fishing for men, catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. Yeah, Peter was afraid for his sin and what it might mean being so close to God in the flesh. What we have here is not just Peter's calling, friends, but it's yours and mine. Jesus is, 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 is calling us to something far beyond what we do for a living, what we do to put food on our family, as some famous politician who many of us miss today now uh, used to say. Jesus is calling us to be something, being who you've been called to be, which, which is what defines you and will give you ultimate meaning and purpose and meaning in this life. And what is that? The calling that he puts on Peter at that point in time is the same brothers and sisters, friends, that he's putting on you. It is, in this passage, catching men. This is where it is actually two Greek words. And it's the Greek word Zeus, which means alive, and agrin, which means catch or hunt. So literally, catching men alive. Catching, catching men and women from the deepest, the deepest water, which is? It's a pit. Catching people alive from eternal separation from God and to life eternal starting today and one day forever. I, I, love, <laughs> I love that Peter doesn't respond like probably the others did on the beach that day. I love that he doesn't respond and say, Jesus, we could have the most amazing fishing business in the world. Come on, we could make so much money from this. It would, it would fund your mission work for the rest of you. You would never have to take tithes and offerings. Again, this would be amazing. He doesn't. He doesn't. No, instead what happens is this. Jesus makes Peter an offer, which on the surface might seem like not the best offer, right? Peter and his partners certainly thought it was. They saw what Jesus can do, but it wasn't about the fish. They saw what it was about. Peter and his partners saw that, and they left everything that day to follow Jesus and to catch people alive. That's what he's calling you and I to, to go catch people alive. We don't have time for it this morning, but I want to close with this. Um, I love the Word of God. Does that come across at all? <laughs> I'm not kidding. I, I love the Word of God. Do you love the Word of God? I hope you do, because it's, it's so precious and so amazing. But I think most of you would be familiar with the fact that there's another fishing story. We're going to talk about this in small group this week, but there's another fishing story that involves Peter and Jesus. Remember that one? It's in John chapter 21, where uh, Jesus has risen from the dead. The disciples have seen him twice. It's within that 40-day period where he's still you know, showing himself to people. And, and he, he's not with them on this particular day. And Peter and the guys are on the shore, right? And they're there. And Peter goes, I'm going fishing. <laughs> and so he goes out into the boat. And, and same thing happens. The guys go with him. They're in the boat. They fish all night. Nothing. 
The next morning as they're, 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 they're pulling in the nets, all of a sudden, one of them, John, sees Jesus on the shore, and Jesus calls out to them. He actually uses the word, children, do you have any fish? I love that. Kids, do you have any fish? And then he says to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat, and you will find some. And they do, and they pull in, and it, there's actually a number in here. Again, facts, journalism, 153 fish, and they pull them all. And well, John then declares to Peter, it's Jesus. Something has changed at this point in Peter's life. Something beautiful and remarkable. He's no longer at this point in his life saying to Jesus, get away from me. <laughs> get away from me. He now knows the most important thing that he can do at this point in his life as a follower, as a believer in Jesus Christ, especially since he's let Jesus down so badly and he's feeling the guilt and shame of having denied him three times that the best thing he can do is wrap his tunic around himself and dive into that water and swim to Jesus as fast as he can. That's what you and I need to do. Amen? All of the time. <laughs> we need to swim to Jesus. We need to get to him as fast as possible. And he will wrap his arms around us. He will feed us. And then he will do with us like he did with Peter. Do you love me? Three times. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Yes, Jesus, I love you. Feed my sheep. I called you to be a catcher of people alive. That is what he's called you and I to. Do you know how to do that? Do you know how to do it? It's actually pretty simple. Pray and ask him. He knows where they are. He knows exactly where they are. He'll show you and he'll guide you to catch them. Pray with me, would you?